Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. Let's get started. Anyway, yeah. so if I sound if I sound terrible this week, <clears throat> it's because I can't breathe. Oh. Breathing's overrated. Yeah. So how's it going, Dave? It is going wonderfully, Joe. How's it going with you? Pretty good. I've spent a ton of time in Unity this week. I feel like I'm finally getting that burst of energy that I was expecting to get the week after my vacation. But it just was, you know, on a bit of a time delay. And <laughs> it came this week. I just got a ton done. A ton of work done, ton of educational stuff done. And just really starting to feel comfortable in Unity. And I've been going through that Ray Wenderlich book that we talked about last week. And I had ambitiously thought, you know, I'll be able to do this whole thing and two or three days and get it out of the way. <laughs> I spent almost the entire week on it and I'm halfway through. Um, but I'm understanding things. I, I'm getting it, I'm learning my way around Unity. I'm learning my way around C Sharp and understanding why why things work. And particularly any anytime it's time to write code and they say, here, go plop this code in somewhere. I read through that and figure out what it's doing before I do that and then type it in myself rather than just lots of copy and paste. So really just trying to take the time to understand, you know, why the game is architected in certain ways. And yeah, I don't know. It's pretty cool. Um, this book, they, like you alluded to last week, they really do need to write an Unreal Engine book. That would be great because they just have a, a, a particular style of teaching that works really well for the way that I want to learn. So, uh, uh, so your comfort with Unity is going way up. Yes, definitely. Definitely feel like I know my way around the tools pretty well. There's a couple things I haven't really done yet, and a couple things I've only kind of done walking through the steps, like working with animations, working with the animator and the animations windows. Those are a little. That's just going to take me several times of doing it on my own to solve my own problems before I really wrap my head around that same thing with sound um like putting sound files in and attaching them to something are simple enough but then there's an entire sound system built in where you can put different items at different levels and um forget what it's all called even are you talking like project organization effectively no actually like creating so creating a scene with a background theme and um, maybe good guys and bad guys that have their sounds and their weapons that have different sounds. You can adjust the levels of each of these things so they don't interfere with each other. And it's almost like even animating sound um, that you can have some sounds cut themselves off like a machine gun can kind of cut off the tail end of itself, but a different type of gun you know, the sounds could stack up over time. So just a lot of different stuff you could do with it. Um, yeah, I definitely don't get it, obviously, since I'm not talking very intelligently about it. <laughs> but there's a whole chapter on it towards the end of the first section. So I've done the first two sections of the book. Section one is getting started where you make a a bobblehead game where you're a, a space marine who's got to fight some aliens and you're a bobblehead, and they're bobbleheads, and it's just kind of a, a silly little game. And you're fighting in a, you know, a small arena-type environment, um, and you just go through the steps of creating the Space Marine. You know, you've got some prefabs that you start with, and that's one thing that um, I haven't done any of yet, is really creating any assets for Unity. Okay. There is a little, a little bit of that in Blender later on in the book which I'm not sure if I'm going to do that chapter or try to if, if I'm going to follow through with it in Blender or try to follow along in Maya or just read through it and take a different course with Maya, I'm not sure yet but everything so far in the course has been provided with the sample content and you just import the assets, so I haven't spent a lot of time you know, making arenas, making characters, things like that, it's more just okay, we've got the arena, import this entire asset it's actually kind of cool how that works you've got 
a whole prefab that is full of you know just the arena prefab is full of meshes and animations and different components attached to different objects um but it just looks like one item in the project browser and you can you know make changes to it in the hierarchy or in the scene and save those back to the prefab and use that on different levels so it's pretty neat how that all works but uh yeah, I'm just eager to spend more time actually making 3D assets. I'm not sure that's going to be my full-time job as I do more and more <laughs> VR stuff, but I'm going to use assets from other sources where possible, but there's definitely going to be some stuff that I want to do in a unique way. Um, and mainly I just want to know how to do all this stuff. Uh, the second section was a first-person shooter where you're I guess ostensibly a robot you don't really have a body because you don't need one but you're <laughs> fighting evil robots mm -hmm. and it's a it's a much shorter section the first section was eight chapters and this one was three chapters uh, and it was neat that they didn't make you redo kind of the the more mundane tasks so at this level they they started you with a lot done already and just taught the things they wanted to teach you in this section rather than, you know, reteaching you how to add components and reteaching you physics and things like that. So the, the okay. first two sections built on upon one another really well. So they had like so a, a starter project or kind of, yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I've, I've started both of the projects from scratch and just imported what they've asked me to. But if you, and this, I think this is true for any of their tutorial series. They always provide a, a huge folder of assets, and each chapter in the book has a subfolder full of the starter version and the finished version. Right. You you can always, if you mess up an entire chapter, you can grab the starter version for the next chapter and start there, and work all the way through the chapter and compare your work against the finished version. Right. So it's pretty handy. I uh, I got through the first chapter completely on my own without messing anything up. The second chapter, I think I missed something somewhere along the way, and my guns don't actually have any projectiles. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know if I read, like, skimmed right over that or what. So, but I am still using ray casting to detect hits against the robots, so I just renamed my guns as stealth guns. <laughs> ah, I win. <laughs> I actually read a sci-fi story once many, many years ago about a guy trying to escape some some alien wolf analogs, and he had a gun that had a disintegration ray, and anything that he shot just silently disappeared. And as he's running along, kind of fighting for his life and dodging these things, he's reflecting upon the fact that he would really like something that acted slower and maybe had a nice loud noise associated with it because everything was happening so quickly and so silently that the wolves weren't noticing that any of their number were disappearing. <laughs> and so they weren't being deterred by this. And so he was going to have to kill all of them. He should probably cut all of that out. But nice. regardless. I think it was like 12 when I read that. Yeah. Anyway. Hi. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to kind of pick out from 300 pages of content what to really talk about. Um, so. I guess one, one feature that is kind of cool, e even though it seems entirely boring, is the concept of having some labels on game objects inside your scene. And this is handy for invisible objects. So say invisible spawn points or points where you want an AI character to check in with. They don't have any, any graphical representation in the scene. But you can give these game objects labels and adjust the editor to show those labels in different colors or different sizes. Um, it's, I don't know why that one stood out to me. It's kind of cool. It was just a like a one paragraph halfway through the first section. I was like, hey, that's really handy. I, I really, really, really wish FileMaker had something like that. <laughs> yeah, it would be almost like the ability to name objects if the names could be bigger. 
Or you could say, I really care about this part. You know, here's the four major components of my interface. Let me promote those to high level navigation. Okay. Um, there, anytime I'm digging into one of these things, there's almost always one spot where I go, Hey, that's a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Like I end up being impressed by how somebody put it together. An example from the beginning when we were dealing with uh, Sprite Kit and I was doing um, uh, Box 2D for physics mm-hmm. was how simple it was to do basic physics interactions. Yeah. Like I always thought it was going to be really, really complicated. And it was like, no, here's gravity. Here's how hard this thing is. Here's how elastic it is. Here's how heavy it is. Go. And it just handles it. Um, has there been anything that you've bumped into that's like that? Not necessarily an interface element, but just more like, wow, that was, that's simple. Like I thought this part was going to be hard. Um, I would say the scripting. Yeah. I I thought, I don't, I don't really know what I thought. I just thought that writing C sharp and unity was going to be a lot like writing C plus plus and unreal, which I found kind of hard to wrap my head around. Um, but in Unity, it really is just scripting. You're attaching single-purpose scripts to objects. You're not writing the entire game in code and instantiating everything that way. You're you're doing all that in the level editor or in the uh, in other parts of the system, and you're just writing code for what you need to augment the behaviors for certain types of objects. And it's all like I probably written. 200 script files and classes so far in a week. Um, some of them are just simple objects with, you know, a class declaration and a couple of variables and a function or two or a method or two. Some of them are much longer. Some of them are using, you know, parent child hierarchies to, you know, create a template and then subclass like the robots in the second game. There's a, a robot class, and then there's individual classes for the different robots that are subclassed from that, and being able to push those attributes down and override stuff. It's just it's all pretty easy compared to what I thought it was going to be, but particularly just thinking of it as just as scripting, which is what FileMaker has, which is kind of what I'm used to on the web. Um, so I don't have to write the entire game logic or the architecture in code. It just it makes it pretty easy to just get in and start working. And also I can see I can see it getting out of hand pretty quickly as well. But we'll see. The other stuff, I, I do agree that physics is easier than I th- thought it would be. But I guess that's more in game development in general than specifically the Unity. Um I guess the the whole game object and component architecture thing in Unity is kind of what's wowing me the most because it's a really simple... Basically, the entire interface is just built on... a com- it's a, It's a complex version of a master detail interface. You click on an object, you modify its attributes, you add more components to add more attributes. If you can't find a component that will do what you want, you make a script for it or you find something in the asset store... And then you move on and you just keep going that way. And you can, you know, keep adding game objects as you need, make prefabs out of them, pair them to other game objects, create hierarchies. You can assign them labels. Um, just a lot, a lot of really cool stuff. Like even in the physics area, you can, you can assign tags or labels to specific types of objects. So say, give all of the architecture in a level one tag and just you know call it walls or walls and floor and then give the bad guys a different tag call them enemies and give spawn or pickups another tag and give them a, you know the pickup tag you can modify the physics so that the enemies can't collide with or pick up the pickups you don't want them interacting with those so they can just pass right through each other and ignore each other where you can still have enemies hurt the hero or run up against walls and things like that. So it's just a little matrix of checkboxes that you want to check. You've got all your tags listed down 
the side and along the top, and you can just check or uncheck the ones that you want to collide. I thought that was a little kind of a, an elegant solution to what could have been a very complex problem. Yeah, it sounds mostly interface different from what we saw from like Sprite Kit with collision classes. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, those were all kind of defined binary uh, masks, and you'd apply a mask to every type of object in the tree, and then those masks would collide. Mm-hmm. Um, which sounds easy and in actual implementation is sometimes a little bit fun. Um, doing that with a series of checkboxes could make that easier. Mm-hmm. You apply multiple tags to a single object? Um, I think tags. There's tags and labels. I think one of them is multiple, one of them is not. I have to check. Okay. If they're following patterns, labels is probably singular, tags is probably plural, but... Yeah. So it's, it's tags and layers, not tags and labels. Labels are the things that are in the... that you can have in the play area, but don't show up graphically. Layers are... Um, mainly what I used for the different physics stuff. And then tags, I think we mostly used... Uh, I don't remember. I'm getting the mix up already. Awesome. It, does, it doesn't help that they're in the tags and layers window is where you match ah. them. <laughs> hmm. um, so I've done you know, a little bit of basic AI stuff with a nav mesh, you know, telling the AIs where to spawn and very simple commands of just go get the hero and try to hurt it. So they're not doing anything too complex, just basic pathfinding stuff that Unity provides. Um, something that I wasn't sure if I was going to like, but now I really, really do like is the coordinate system You've got the global space for the level that applies to all game objects at the parent level. Any child object of another game object only exists in the parent object space. So you can, you know, you can make a player, give it a head, give it a body, and you can set those head and body coordinates just, you know, in small numbers like zero, zero, and one on the Z axis or something like that as opposed to trying to do all that in global space and then trying to abstract it out into a way that would work with the prefabs. And I think that's exactly why it works this way, is because everything is so easy to make from a game object into a prefab that it all just needs to exist in its own kind of self-contained local space. But it just, I don't know, at first I was like, this is going to be complicated. I'm like, wait a second, this is way easier. <laughs> After working with it for a while. Um, the controls are pretty good. I, I'm liking how to navigate the editor pretty well. Um, there's a little 3D widget that you can switch different views very fast and and go in between perspective and isometric view um, just at the click of a button. So there's a lot, there's a lot fewer tools kind of crowding the top of the editor. Like there is in Unreal Engine, there's a lot more there. Um I think because you can, frankly, you can build a lot more detail in the level editor in, in Unreal Engine than you can in Unity, at least from what I've seen so far. But yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I, I like it so far. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm understanding things. I'm picking up ideas. Um, and I, I guess the most important part is that you know, I'm halfway through this book and I'm already understanding my way through Google's documentation for making daydream apps and following through their tutorials and examples. But the, when I tried to work with those a couple of weeks ago, I was like, okay, I'm just running up into way too many Unity things that I don't know yet. Um, so having dived back into some of that stuff today, there wasn't anything that I couldn't do from those tutorials and documents. 
that was that was my previous experience with the Wenderlich Sprite Kit books was that by the time I was done, it wasn't that I understood how to do a big game from beginning to end, but what I did have the ability to do was be self-directed and learning. Like I understood enough that documentation and other people's examples suddenly started to make a whole lot more sense. I had the the baseline knowledge framework that I needed to be able to progress in whatever direction I wanted to, which is exactly really, is that what I want from the first one? Like I'd love a book that just kind of dumped all the knowledge that I need for everything into my head, but that's unreasonable. (laughs) But this gives me everything that I really need out of my first introductory process to learning a particular technology. And so, you know, yeah, if they ever made a unreal one, I definitely get it. Me too. So yeah, I've got. I'm about halfway through the book. Um, there's also some Google VR and Daydream stuff that I've started. Google published a couple of COVID labs on their site a couple weeks ago that I found today, and I've been working through one of those. And there's two more of them I'm going to go through. And then there's a bunch of blog posts that I found for Daydreams, specifically working with the controller and doing some stuff there. And then I have started working on a project. I think I started Friday morning and made a couple of hours of progress on that. And it's a good feeling to kind of know what I'm building, get to a certain point where I don't really know what to do. but. Maybe not quickly, but I am eventually able to figure out how to ask the question and find the resources that I need to make the next step. Um, so it's definitely slow going at this point. You know, just I don't have the experience in Unity to really know all the steps yet and all the questions, but I think this book is helping and the other resources are helping get me up to speed pretty quickly. Um, I don't know how much of the experience with Unreal Engine is tying into this. I'd imagine a good deal because I've been thinking about this stuff so much in the last couple of months, but I feel like I just feel like I've got at this point more of a grasp on Unity than I do on Unreal Engine. Even though I've only spent a week and a half on it as opposed to two or three months in Unreal Engine. I just feel like this is clicking and making sense more. Um, Which is kind of good because I need to actually publish some content within the next couple of months. So. This is a uh, kind of a sink or swim scenario. So, so let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. I've got half of this book left to do. And I'm looking at my week coming up, starting tomorrow. And there are two ways I could go. I could slow down on the book and go dive into working full-time on the project that I want to work on. Um, Even if it's slow going and I have to stop and check documentation constantly, I can start making progress on that and maybe save an hour at the beginning or the end of each day to continue making progress on this book and some other tutorials and kind of just make that the, the plan moving forward. Or I could just buckle down and try to finish this book this week and finish through the other educational resources that I have and then worry about the project next week and hopefully be more mentally armed to deal with that, having picked up a few more things. I can see pros and cons for both, and that's why I'm bringing it up. I know from experience, anytime I've tried to carve a big project up into an hour a day. I tend to find anything else to do besides that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure if that's the best course. It feels like that's what I should do, but I feel like I'll never finish the book if I do that. Like I never Mm -hmm. finished that Sprite Kit book last year. Once I started working on Random Arrow, I was two or three chapters or two or three sections into that, probably about halfway through, and I had learned enough to ask Sprite Kit the questions that I needed to ask it to make progress, and I never went back and finished the book. And I probably could have made a much better game if I had finished it. Okay. I have two bits of feedback. Okay. The first is that 
my general experience when playing with this kind of stuff is reading the book is kind of like being in orbit around a gravity well. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in that circle and I'm doing this thing, but I'm speeding up as I'm going. And eventually it becomes impossible to stay in orbit. I've got escape velocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not that I make the choice to go do the other thing. I've now reached this point where my comfort level is high enough that I don't have the option anymore. My brain is refusing to look at that book anymore, and I'm just going. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened on Friday. I had planned to spend the day just continuing on the book and make, knocking out a couple more chapters, and I ended up just... I did that in the morning, went on my morning walk and came back and started a new project and started working on that the rest of the day. There's too many ideas floating around yep. and too many, too many kind of mini aha moments. <laughs> a brief side note. Um, at one point I went to a coffee shop and I uh, was sitting there working on this series and I guess I was, I was having very loud epiphanies <laughs> as I'm just learning different things. And I started to gather a couple of looks like, what's up with that guy? I was like, ha, huh, oh, okay. Like, Whoa, that's how you do that. Just, you know. just, uh, awesome. Yeah, eventually realized that, oh, wait a second, I have headphones on and I'm much louder than I think I am right now. So, yeah, so my, my first comment is, to me, it's hardly ever a conscious decision. If you're thinking about it consciously, you should almost certainly stay in the book. Okay. Um, if you're questioning, it's I, I get spun off, and there's just no place else for me to go. The other thing that I would do is take a good, solid look at the table of contents for what those later sections are going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And anything that comes close to being something that you're going to need go ahead and hit them now. They may impact your core design or the way you structure things from the beginning. Um, there was a late chapter in the Sprite Kick book that walks through doing Game Kit and using that to be able to set up a multiplayer game. And it's a really interesting chapter, but it's very technically complicated and took quite a while to get done. Mm-hmm. And... I wasn't planning on doing anything like that anytime soon. <laughs> like that was on the agenda eventually, but at that point I was going through the book for completionism. Like I'm going to force myself to do the entire book and it's hard to force myself to do a section. Um, again, it was a great section. It was just not where I needed to be at the time. And so I would take a good solid look at the TOC for, um, you know, sections three, section four, see what those games are, see what those things are going to be like and the things that they're going to teach you about in those sections and make a more informed decision there. Yeah, just looking at the section titles, the next two sections are section three is a 2D platformer, which sounds interesting, but not going to be making any 2D platformers in VR anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't mean I can't learn more about unity from that, but it is mm-hmm. a different set of tools in unity that you use for that stuff. Then the next section is just called section four blender. And it has to do with modeling a blender and creating textures and animations, which I'm on the fence about that. Um, I, I tried to work in blender a couple of months ago and I found it just really confusing just to navigate the thing. It just felt like everything was inside out. Mm-hmm. And then uh, <clears throat> when I first tried out Maya, like this feels much more about how I think I should interact with a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm on the fence of like, should I even go through this chapter? Should I just read through it and try to pick up what I can? Uh, on the other hand, there's this tiny part in the back of my head that knows that there's a technology called blend for web where you can actually use blender to make assets for web VRs. I'm like, I'm kind of curious about that, but is this the time for that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, imagine how good a Ray Wenderlich blender tutorial could be. 
Yeah. It may just be that you needed a good blender tutorial. Maybe. There is something wrong, in my <laughs> opinion, with the way you navigate uh-huh. in that editor. And I don't think that's going to go away unless I can completely change that somehow. Probably but not. Out of, the, out of the box, the way you interact with 3D objects and interact with that 3D space, the combination of mouse buttons and control buttons and modifier keys is enough to inflame my RSI to the point. Like, this is a non-working program for me. Right. Where I felt like I didn't have that problem in Maya. Yeah. So yeah, I'll give it a shot, but I mean, just that that completionist in me does want to go through all of this, even if I don't do the examples on that chapter. Um, and then the the last two sections of the book are a tower defense game that has four chapters, and one of them is a virtual reality chapter, um, mainly around the HTC Vive and maybe the Oculus. I don't know. Yeah, there's some stuff in here about the Oculus Rift. I would almost certainly do that section. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then just a couple of appendices, a C-sharp crash course, a Unity API chapter, and more about code editors. Okay. I, I'd probably skim the 2D section just to see if they're using that as a basis for teaching you some other cool code stuff. Mm-hmm. Like this may just be where they're going to teach you about it, but it isn't entirely about, or the only thing that you learn about isn't just the 2d tools that you're also going to learn some code that would be useful in other places. Um, so I, I'd at least skim that one. Okay. You'll probably end up skimming blender, but remapping it to Maya, mm-hmm. which shouldn't be hard. I mean, most of the import tools are going to be remarkably similar. So it's really just the Blender side. And if you're learning Maya better, you should be able to translate in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or at least to make and, something similar. And there's a ton of Maya resources out there as well, including working with Maya and Unity sure. together, both on the Maya site and a bunch of the third-party stuff as well. So, Yeah, I will probably just try to buckle down and finish up the educational stuff. I've got a growing list of stuff, uh, just a long checklist of some of the code lab stuff, the book I've been working on, some C-sharp videos, some Maya videos, some Maya tutorials, a bunch of blog posts, and I'd rather just try to knock all that stuff off the list mm-hmm. and then go into the project full-time. My guess is if you buckle down really hard and hit those with a vengeance by Thursday or Friday, you're not going to be able to do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the ideas rattling around in your head will no longer be able to wait. Yeah. That's, that's happening already. Just this weekend. I, I made myself take a couple of days off. Well, all of Saturday, most of Friday did some work. Friday morning and Friday morning. I have two mornings, by the way. Because I get up so early. <laughs> Most of my work day is before noon. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's just me being weird. So, you know, I'm sitting there, and Friday I watched a bunch of anime. I watched a movie. And then Saturday I'm like, okay, I'm going to do all these things that aren't work. And all I'm thinking about is, like, more things I could try in Unity and how to get the laser pointer to do a certain thing and daydream. And it's like, I'm not sure if this day off thing is actually a healthy thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I keep hearing people tell me it's a good idea, but it doesn't sound like a good idea right now. I would like to revise my estimate to Wednesday at about noon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before you just go spinning off into the ether. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as far as the daydream stuff specifically, there's a couple of cool things I wanted to touch on. One is it looks like I won't need a second Android device after all. We talked about when I first looked into it a couple weeks ago, there was the concept of a using a second Android device as a controller emulator so you could work in the uh, Unity editor. Mm-hmm. without having to always run code on device. And 
there are two things that now make that obsolete. One, there was an update to the SDK, and they basically you just drag in a prefab into the scene you're working on, and this provides a couple of extra inputs that you can map out just using some modifier keys from the mouse, kind of mimic using the controller, which is good enough for just quickly running the game and checking to see if, you know if a certain object looks right. The other thing is something called Instant Preview that they announced at Google I.O., and I just kind of skimmed over it in my notes at the time when I watched that series of videos. But it's basically a a plugin for Unity or a package of code. I'm not really sure if it counts as a plugin, whatever it is. It's a gob of something, and you drag it into your project, and then there's an Android app that you install, and you open the Android app, launch it in whichever mode you want. There's full emulation mode, and then there's controller-only mode. And then I can hit play in Unity. It'll run on device, so just like with Xcode. And you can run in the simulator, or you can run on the device. You don't have to actually compile and ship it to the device. You can do that, too, obviously, with Unity. It doesn't take very long for the project I've been working on so far, you know, two or three minutes to build and load it onto the device. But doing that dozens of times a day gets pretty old. But with this instant preview thing, I can do that and sit here with the phone plugged in and whenever I run the code, pick the phone up and have the controller ready. So yeah, it was pretty neat. It's not perfect. It's behind the SDK, a version or two. Um... So it's supported for like 1.4 and 1.5 versions of the SDK, but the SDK is already on 1.7, which is the one I'm using. So there was a couple of squashing the red dots that I got to do today. Like, you know, the code code wouldn't compile. Nothing would run until I made those go away. And I didn't really know what to fix. So I just commented out whole sections of stuff it looked like I didn't need. <laughs> And suddenly it started working, which is quite possibly the worst experience you can possibly have. Yeah, but this is none of this is code that actually makes it into the project. This is just for the emulation stuff. Right. So I don't really care. Like it was, you know, about showing battery indicators while debugging. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. The phone is plugged in. So yeah, it's pretty neat stuff. The other thing that stood out to me is as I work more with the daydream stuff, um, we talked about last week when you tried the controller and how it really is meant for more of a laser pointer and you know it just never really tracks well in 3D space. I was looking into that more. Um, so Google really wants you to use an arm with the controller. So you put the camera, the camera is positioned where the head is going to be in VR. And obviously the position of that is where the person's head happens to be, whether mm-hmm. they're sitting or standing, things like that. The The whole camera mount where the, the uh, controller mount is basically mounted to an invisible arm that's modeled off a human arm, and it's supposed to track that way. And looking at it more carefully in the YouTube app or a couple of other apps that Google made, that works really well. Some of the third-party apps, it works really well. Some of them, it works horribly. So I'm wondering if people are just skipping over that phase and not implementing this arm and just throwing the controller in. Because it, it's it it's not perfect by any means. You you don't see perfect tracking, but you it does stay about where you think it should be, for the most part. If you move it, you know, if you fly your hand across the scene, it's going to take a minute to get over where it needs to be. But yeah, just a, it was just something kind of weird. Okay, um, when I was playing with it, one of the pieces of advice you gave me was basically to kind of put your hand in your lap, mm-hmm. and then the tracking seemed to work a lot better effectively when I wasn't, I wasn't moving my hand. I was only changing the pitch of it mm-hmm. so that the physical location of the hand was always in one place. I was just rotating it around that central point and that central point was basically in line with my head, even if a couple of feet further down where I would bump into problems was if I had my hand in front of me and I tried to move my hand a foot to the right and then aim the pointer back to the left, it never seemed to track really cleanly there, and those movements were where it would fall out of alignment. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
it was, if you're not implementing those, the ARM, the controller is just guessing blindly mm-hmm. at those. And if you are implementing it, it is still just guessing. It's making <laughs> slightly more intelligent decisions, but not much. So putting the ARM in kind of puts a bounding rectangle on the whole thing and mm-hmm. says, well, somewhere in here. Yeah. So and I definitely look forward to see. It's a great laser pointer and remote. It's not a great controller yet. I look forward to see their next iteration of inputs with some kind of... I'm not sure if they're going to have anything for input with this new WorldSense headsets or what that's going to look like. But it it would be nice to have just a, a small sensor the size of a Google Home or smaller that you could just, you know, battery-powered. All it needs to be is a battery and a, I don't know, an LED light, a, a constant in the room that the controller and the headset could track on and you could solve a lot of this stuff. I'm making it sound really easy because I'm a software guy. <laughs> hardware yeah. people just, just do the hardware things. Yeah. Just, just click the make it track properly checkbox yeah. and, yeah. you know, and then press th- print on the 3d printer and get the new thing out and then give it to me. That's, that's yeah. all I need. That's all I need. Yeah. I expect that by the end of the year. I think that was one of the old Dilbert things, which was a line about anything I don't understand is easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, So yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at with Unity and Daydream. Um, I think for now I'm going to stick with trying to make my way through the course until I can't anymore. And then, uh, yeah. We'll talk next week and see how far I got. Do you want to? Do you want to guess on page count or anything? Like on, on what page? Oh, what page you're going to stop on? I'm on page 325 out of 650. <laughs> the real problem is, I think you're going to be skimming or skipping some sections. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to get all the way through the book, but have skipped 40 percent of what's left. Yeah. Ish. Something like that. So, cool. uh, uh, are you doing all of this on your, on your windows laptop on the, on the blade thing or, or what? Nope. No. <laughs> Very leading question. They segue there. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. So last time I saw Dave at our FileMaker user group a week and a half ago, he walked in a couple minutes earlier than I was expecting before I could hide my new laptop from him so he wouldn't make fun of me. Uh-huh. But, but uh, yeah, that didn't work out. Oh, so you were and, planning uh, on hiding it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I did give you some crap for that. Yeah. Why please, do you think I didn't proceed. ask you for a ride? <laughs> oh, God. <it's clears throat> so, yeah. Um, so, new laptop, I, Joe. Yes. So when I did some serious thinking after vacation and diving into web VR and daydream and just mobile VR or I guess non-tethered VR in general, um, counting in the world sense stuff and standalone stuff, it, I just realized I didn't really want to be developing in its tethered environment and when I, that day that I tried working with Daydream, both in Unreal Engine and in Unity, I also did a third block of that where I reproduced all the stuff in Unity that I did on Windows on the Mac, on my old Mac, the almost four-year-old machine, very much underpowered at this point. Still a good machine, um, but not necessarily for 3D work. And... I was able to get everything up and running. Things were running at 60 or 70 frames a second in the editor. I was able to compile code and put it on to the Android device. And everything was working. So I decided to solve the biggest annoyance in my life, which was the fact that over the past six months, VR has taken over my life, which in many ways is a good thing, but it's taken over my physical environment in a bad way, where I've got... All these computers, all these wires, all these devices everywhere. And I just 
never really felt like I can get away from work. Um, and I've also been, as a result of using a bunch of different inputs and keyboards and just not working in a way that's physically comfortable to me with these other computers, I've been developing more and more RSI issues. And I don't know why I can do so much more work on a Mac, on just a MacBook Pro without hurting myself, but I can sit here and work on a FileMaker app or a web application for weeks at a time without developing any injuries or anything, but two or three days on a standard keyboard or even my ergonomic keyboard and a mouse, and I'm like tearing myself to shreds. So I decided after all of those rationalizations and justifications <laughs> that I was going to buy a new MacBook, which was pretty much the exact same thing that I bought back in June when we first started the show. And uh, if you listen back to episodes one and two, episode one was Dave and I celebrating the fact that Apple finally gave us some new MacBooks that actually support external GPUs that we can start doing VR development in. And then episode two was me explaining just how badly that went for me at the time. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. You can go listen to that episode for more. But it was it was pretty bad. I'm thinking at this point, I definitely had a lemon. I had a, just a, a bad machine in that instance because I'm not having any of those issues with this one. I don't have any wireless issues. It's not having any keys locking and just infinite lock where I have to smother and reboot the thing. Um, so it's been good so far. And I ordered the laptop. It was here within a day or two. And I just transferred my entire profile and data from the previous one onto this one. So there was no downtime other than about you know 20 minutes of copying data over. And I've been working on that since. And it's to the point where the Razer and my previous MacBook Pro are at a friend's house listed on Craigslist or eBay some way for sale. So this is the only computer in the house now. <laughs> and to a certain degree, this works because you're doing so much stuff with Daydream that has its own GPU that you don't need, A, the external GPU, or B, the a higher end GPU to run your Vive because you're not even using your Vive anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Vive is boxed up in the closet in my <laughs> office right now. Um, I will definitely get that back out at some point. I'm not sure if I will get an external GPU for this laptop when that becomes a better, better supported solution, or I may just end up getting building a Windows PC like you did. I think I just was not satisfied with the nearly $4,000 Razer setup that I had that I just felt like was just taking up a lot of room on my accounting. <laughs> like, wow, like half of my assets are on this laptop. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that had to go. So I'm not going to miss it. It was a neat device. It was a lot... The game, or the laptop was good at what it said. It was good. It was a fun laptop for gaming. It was not a fun laptop for working. Okay. Um, yeah, this is a fun laptop for working. There are things, you know, there's things that aren't perfect about it, but it does. It does basically. It scratches the same itch for me that the Pixel does, which is both of these devices get out of the way, where. Whenever I'm working on the Windows machine, I feel like I'm working in Windows and I'm, I've got to do things Windows way. And I'm just like I'm a guest here where I'm comfortable enough with Mac OS now. And I frankly, I disable enough of Mac OS or don't use enough of the native stuff that I'm just in Unity. I'm in Visual Studio. I'm in FileMaker or Chrome or wherever I need to be. I don't really care about the rest of the stuff. But I use the OS to navigate. I use it to set up various workflows. And this is where I can be a, you know, effective and, and get my work done. Same thing with the Pixel. You know, I always felt like... Uh, I don't think I ever realized how inefficient I was on the iPhone, even with all of my customization and sorting all my apps in certain ways. But I still feel like the Pixel is the productivity workhorse in my life for all things that aren't development. And it's 
you know, these two devices are always sitting next to each other during the workday. And anything that doesn't need to be typed into Visual Studio or looking up some documentation, everything else goes straight into the phone. I just talk to it. Um, yeah, it, see, it's a pretty good combination. There was also one something that got me thinking about this is when I was watching all of the Google I.O. videos of people doing presentations on Daydream, they were all using MacBook Pros. Like every single one of them. For the code demos, for just the you know, the more presentation type demos, but they were all working on Macs. I'm like, wait a second. You can't do VR on a Mac. I've been told that over and over and over again. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't talk about it last week because I wasn't sure. I, I didn't want to have a repeat of our previous cycle where Joe gets a laptop and then Joe gets rid of a laptop. So I wanted to give it time to see if I was going to have any issues with it. But haven't had any hardware or software related issues. It runs Unity very well. It runs Maya pretty well. Um, yeah, so far so good. So now's the part where you make fun of me. I don't know. I, I feel like with the extra time, I've just kind of come to peace with it. I mean, it was yeah. it was fascinating watching you scramble to kind of cover. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I shouldn't have gotten the space gray one. I should have gotten the silver one. You might not have noticed so easily. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty aware of the shape of the ports on the side of the laptop. That's actually almost. I mean, the, the, I I caught the color. That's almost what I noticed first, or in, perhaps immediately after, is just the shape of only those two USB-C ports on the side of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm used to looking at those ports to determine MacBook machine generation. Mm-hmm. You know Whether it has FireWire 800 or FireWire 400 or no FireWire whatsoever or whatever. Um, and so I look very quickly for those ports. I'm like, Hey, that's a dark laptop. B, it has no ports. C, you know, it looks really thin. (laughs) I think that's a new laptop. Yep. And it was trying to figure out whether you'd borrowed it from Mike or something like that, or what was really going on. And no, it was yours. So, So if and when I do get another Windows machine, I'll probably just get a desktop or build a desktop and maybe even just run it without a display and just remote into it from this. So still use this as my primary workstation, but remote onto the Windows machine for certain workflows. Um, But that's pretty far down the road at this point. I'm really kind of committed to doing stuff in Daydream for now and then expanding what I can do with this machine into ARKit stuff, Tango stuff, WebVR stuff, and just avoiding desktop VR until I need to, or until I have some project that I just can't not do. But yeah, I've... Uh, successfully run my business for the last two and a half years off of a MacBook Pro. And then I think I can continue doing so. (laughs) Awesome. And it was really nice to actually go outside the house with the machine and actually be able to do the VR work. I could never do that with the Razer. Like it would, it has such poor battery life that just running Unreal Engine or Unity on it for 20 minutes would drain the battery. How long does your battery last now? Um, I get, I went to a coffee shop on Wednesday. I think I was there for about three hours and I didn't run out. I'm not sure what I had left after that, but that was with unity, basically just unity, a text editor and preview open with the PDF and visual studio. Yeah, Visual Studio. That was also another contributing factor. I'm not sure I would have bought this laptop if Visual Studio hadn't released a Mac version. Um, they released that earlier this summer, and if 
if I had to go back to Xcode or Mono Mono Develop or whatever it was, yeah, I think it was Mono Develop. Mm-hmm. If I had to use that, I may have stayed with the Razor. But when they just gave me a little drop down box where I could switch to Visual Studio, I'm like, yep, sign me up for this. So it's it's pretty slick. It's not nearly as sophisticated as the Windows version, um, but it it does that thing that I like, which is stay out of the way. Right. It's got really good IntelliSense and stuff like that, but for the most part, it just stays out of the way and lets me write the scripts that I need to write and get back into Unity. Cool. One of these days, we need to do a more in-depth discussion on Visual Studio, maybe next week. I can only talk about the Windows version because I haven't really used the Mac version. Yeah. But I've got a fair amount of time in the Windows version. Yeah. You've You've got a unique experience of over two years of experience in Visual Studio and Xcode working on the same project. Yeah, it's a little funky. Um, but yeah, if we're going to talk about that next week, then cool. Cool. Anything else on your list, Dave? I did see that they've announced a release date for Fallout 4 for VR. Nice. Which uh, I, I've decided that I will probably have to pick that up if for no other reason than to save the lives of my friends. Yeah. Because I have some friends who are hardcore Fallout fanatics. And if they get, like, if that game comes out and it's as good as it looks, they would probably get a full VR rig in their houses. And then three weeks later, I'm going to have to stop by and use a spatula to scrape them off of their floor. Um,. I'm not sure if your machine can do it, but I, if you need to borrow my Vive, you can get two of those running. Oh god, I don't. I don't think my machine can do that. Also, Fallout's really a single-player game, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, you'd have to virtualize it. You'd oh, so like, like run it on two separate machines at the same time? I don't think I have enough house for that. <laughs> I there's the you know there's the upstairs VR and the downstairs VR and the bathroom VR. Actually, I if I completely rearranged my living room, I could probably get two full Vive setups in my living room. It's a big living room. Yeah, I but did it's hear full of stuff. So I did hear on a podcast though that you you can run multiple headsets off the same pair of lighthouses but you do not want to mix lighthouses. So you don't want to have two sets of competing lighthouses in the same area because it's just like insta-puke for both parties. <laughs> Tracking gets insane. A couple of people tried that and didn't end well. So we drop a, a small screen in between the two sections of the, you know, no, hang up a sheet it, or something. It's infrared light, so it's going through a lot of stuff. Oh, how about a thick sheet between the two sections? Tin foil. Tin foil will do it. We'll use tin yep. foil. That solves everything. If you can make a heat sink for daydream out of foil, then you can <laughs> make a wall for Vive. Um The other big sciencey thing that happened in the last week, you and I haven't actually discussed the eclipse. Oh yeah. Did you did you watch the eclipse? There was any. There wasn't really anything to see from here other than clouds. But I did watch them unreal, reveal the next android robot statue and the name of android, which was kind of a big letdown. I thought it was going to be, hey, we're announcing the new android today. We're going to show you what it's like, and it's going to be shipping on such and such date. No, it was just like, here's this statue and a name for a two minute video, and we're done. And it should be out by the end of the year. I'm like what? Is that is that Oreo or Yeah. Yeah. Like they timed it with the eclipse and there was a bunch of people in a field, you know, watching the eclipse <laughs> and the Oreo. But uh yeah, it was just kind of a letdown. I guess I'm used to the Apple's way of doing things of like, here's the new OS and it's available today or on Monday or whatever it is. And this was just like it's called this. We'll let you know when it's ready. <laughs> I'm not sure that needed a announcement. Yeah. Or yeah. a statue. I guess the statue thing is a tradition or every birth uh-huh. of Android. They, they have a new statue 
There's like a some kind of statue garden of androids somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for more of a more of an, an announcement type event. Particularly, I just want to know when the next version of Daydream is going to hit because there's some really cool stuff there. You think that's going to land with Oreo or earlier? I think it's probably going to. I think. Oreo will probably be out first. They're probably going to launch Daydream 2 with their new headsets um, whenever those come out. Okay. But at the same time, they people were saying that they're going to have some big Google events on October 5th to unveil new phones and new Google Homes and a pair of smart headphones and stuff like that. So maybe they do more Daydream stuff there. That's where they... That's the event they did launch Daydream last year, so maybe... They'll have the world stuff, world sense stuff done by then. Um, I don't know. It would be nice. I particularly want the the version of Chrome in Daydream that you don't have to leave Daydream and you can stay on Web VR and bounce around the internet. That's going to be huge. Cool. Well, Daydream will become huge for me once I see you doing something cool with it. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's that's not far off. There's a particularly fun idea I've been working on. I don't want to talk about it yet because I don't want to poison the idea yet. But I don't think you'll be disappointed. I I like Random Arrow, so I don't know how I could be disappointed. Nice. It's a very mom thing to say. <laughs> well, you know, I was mentoring a little bit during that. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm at VRHermit underscore Joe. Uh, We also have a website, VRHermits.com. If you could, like us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or your podcast player of choice. 